let's pray before we get into the Bible. Um, Lord, thanks so much that you are with us and that you take care of us and that you speak to us by your word. We pray now that you prepare our hearts and our minds uh, to hear you clearly and to learn from you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, first they took our money and then they took our belongings and then they made us put on blindfolds and then they led us into a room and they handcuffed us to the floor and then they locked the door. And then the timer started. We were trapped and we desperately needed to find a way out. I don't know if you've ever uh, done an escape room. Uh, That was certainly the most exotic uh, and intense escape room uh, experience that I've ever been in. But I wonder if many of us have also felt trapped. Have you ever felt stuck for options with no way out? Have you found yourself stuck in a relationship that you didn't want to be in, but you didn't know how to get out? You found yourself stuck in a job that you didn't want, or maybe you're experiencing that you're, you're stuck in a course of study that you rather would not be doing. Have you ever been trapped by your own commitments, squeezed out by the things that you've said yes to? Well, today we're looking at a moment in Israel's history in which they were under a lot of pressure. They were stuck, they were trapped, and there was no way out. And they were afraid. And the, the section that we're looking at is, starts in Exodus chapter 13, verse 17, and goes all the way most, of the way, most of the way through chapter 15 as well. And it follows on from the section that we looked at last week. Last week, if you were here, we were looking at the events of the Passover and how God brought the 10th plague upon the Egyptians. Pharaoh let the, the Israelites go out of Egypt. And, um, and, and we talked about how the Israelites were to remember that moment year after year with that public holiday of the Passover. And so uh, today, we're, I'm really excited for us to look at the story. But just before we do that, I want us just to zoom out a little bit and just have a think about how does the Bible work? Because, you see, some people think that the Bible is like a textbook. It's just there to give you um, information, doctrine, teachings about God. Uh, and the other, some other people think, oh, the Bible is a rule book. It's a manual for how to live. And when you open it up, it just gives you a whole bunch of laws and commandments. And yet, when you actually open up the Bible, yes, there are some rules. Yes, there are some doctrines, statements about God. But a whole lot of the Bible is not written in either of those formats. It's written as story. It's a report about the drama of history, of what God has done. Now, this is different from what, how you might approach other religions. If you start reading the Quran to learn about Islam, what you first read in the first chapter of the Quran is about the things about God, things you have to believe, and what happens if you believe or don't believe. If you learn Buddhism, the first thing that you might learn, um, sure, there are you know, the four basic noble truths, but actually the way to get into Buddhism is by learning the practice of Buddhism, the eightfold path, and involves uh, meditation and so on. And, uh, but when you open up the Bible, it doesn't start with either of those things. It drops you into a drama. It talks about the story of how God created the heavens and the earth, how he created man and woman, how they rejected him and so on, how that led to one thing after another. You see, of all the different religions, the Bible actually emphasizes that we need to know 
the history of what God has done. And it's through the events of what God has done that we discover who He is, that we can derive、uh, the doctrine about God, humanity, and the world. And so it's the drama of history that leads us to doctrine, teaching, and to doxology. Doxology is a word that, is,、um, that means praise, hallelujah, a praise, expression of praise to God. And often our, the way that we praise God is through the truths that we learn about God. And about finally, it doesn't stop with the truths about God, but, it, but,、uh, but the Bible's aim is that we might be disciples. And so we must move from doctrine to discipleship、uh, because the aim of the Bible is so that we can become better followers of God and of Jesus. So that's how we're going to structure our time. We're going to look at the drama first, then we'll look at the doctrine that comes out of that drama and the doxology, and then we'll look at、um, the、uh, discipleship implications for us as well. Okay, so. First up is drama, and I've brought along some props, but I need some volunteers to help me with, this, uh, with, uh, with, with telling this story. So,、uh, can I get a volunteer to come up and help me?、Um, I, I need four volunteers all together, right? So just get ready. Right? So put up your hand if you'd like to volunteer. Redman, great, thank you. You can, you can come up, please. And I have here、uh, some Israelites,、uh, Sour Patch kids. Here we go. Here you go. You can have both of those.、Um, and so we're told that the Israelites they came out of Egypt. And、uh, if you have ex- Exodus 14 in front of you,、um, or 13, then、um, this is what it says When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said, If they faced war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around the desert road toward the Red Sea. Okay, the Red Sea.、Um, what color is the Red Sea? <laughs>、um, well, I've got red. I mean, I've got blue. Here we go, blue. Alrighty, can someone, someone volunteer to be the Red Sea? Amen. Alright, you are coming up. You are the sea. Here we go. And the Israelites, they have to take this journey not toward the Philistine country, but toward the Red Sea. Now, Um, after leaving Sukkot, they camped at Etham on the edge of the desert, and by day the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or night. So、uh, God's presence is with them, and it's manifested. He, he,、um, God's presence is, is shown by this pillar, this column of cloud that they see during the day, and fire at night. So I've got a column here,、um, and I'd like someone to be, to be God. You guys, come on, put up your hand. Someone volunteer. Alrighty, thank you. Here we go. Column of fire for you. And、uh, here we go. And、uh, then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back、uh, and encamp near、uh, Pi Haharoth, between Migdol and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea, directly opposite Baal Zephon. Pharaoh will think, The Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. And I'll harden Pharaoh's heart and he'll pursue them. But I'll gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. And so the Israelites had to backtrack and go back toward the sea. And what we're seeing here is that God's maneuvering the Israelites in specifically, we're told, to bait Pharaoh. 
so that Pharaoh will send his army out against them. And so, what we read next, when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officers changed their minds about them and said, what have we done? We've let the Israelites go, go and have lost their services. They realize that the Egyptian economy is built to work around low-wage laborers, and they've just let all of them go. And so they need to get them back. So this is what they did. He had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of his, uh, the best chariots, along with all the other chariots of Egypt, with officers all over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. And, okay, so I need someone to be Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Thanks, Rachel. Alrighty, here we go. I've got some chariot wheels, wagon wheels. One, two, there you go, a big army. Okay, now the Pharaoh, Pharaoh's army chases down the, Egypt, uh, the, uh, the um, Israelites and overtakes them and uh, ends up on the other side. Okay, here we go. And then uh, they uh, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they encamped by the sea. Right. So as Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up and there were the Egyptians. Marching after them, they were terrified. And they said to, um, uh, they said, um, they cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone. Let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. This is the language of total panic. The Israelites, they're stuck between the sea and the Egyptians. There's no way out. They're trapped. They're stuck. They're about to die. They're so anxious and they cry out to the Lord. And look, wouldn't any of us be exactly the same as them? If we were faced in the same situation, wouldn't we be crying out to the Lord. Wouldn't we be saying, oh, it would have been better to be slaves in Egypt. It would be better to live that comfortable life of hardship and making bricks uh, than to die in the desert. Well, Moses answered the people, don't be afraid. Stand firm and you'll see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, will ne you'll never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. So Moses says, be still. You just have to watch. God will fight for you. And yet it even seems that Moses himself didn't really believe his own words because the next thing that we read, verse 15, the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I'll harden the hearts of the Egyptians so they'll go in after them and I'll gain glory through Pharaoh and all his armies, through his chariots and his horsemen, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Okay, so this is what happens. The angel of the Lord, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. So instead of leading them by, from the front, he goes in be between the armies of Egypt and Israel. And throughout the night, uh, the cloud brought darkness to one side and light to the other side, so neither went near the other all night long. And then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into, uh, so, and turned it into dry land. There you go. And the waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. 
How amazing. The, the God parts the waters. Like this is almost physically impossible to imagine. But he sends the, the wind to part the waters. So the dry land appears and then the, uh, the, the Israelites walk through. And then the I- Egyptians pursued them. And all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He jammed the wheels of the chariots so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. And then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and at daybreak the sea went back into its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it and the Lord swept them into the sea. Um, (laughs) um, And the the water flowed back and covered the chariots and the horsemen and the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea, not one of them survived. The same God who sent the flood to judge the earth, covered the earth with water, now covers the, the Egyptian army with that same water. Now, the Israelites went through the sea and dry ground, we're told in conclusion, with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day, the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, they, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. Alrighty. Thank you, all of you. Um, you can have a round of applause. And I um, yeah, hope you can enjoy consuming the Israelites and the Egyptians. You can keep them um, over lunch. Take them with you. Um, and, uh, and okay, so here's, here's the drama of the story. We've looked at how God saved the Israelites yet again from the Egyptians um, without them even having to lift a finger. Now, if you might notice, actually, that even in the story, if you've got chapter 15 open in front of you, that after all these events have been narrated in chapter 13 and 14, uh, the story itself moves from the drama of what happened to doctrine and doxology. The very next thing that happens is that Moses, he sings a song. And what does the song uh, say? It recounts some of the deeds that the Lord has done and the conclusion of who God is and declares those things in praise of God. Okay, so uh, I want you to take 90 seconds, turn to the person next to you. We've heard the story. What points of doctrine, teaching, what do we learn about God from the story that we've just read? Okay, take 90 seconds, talk to the person next to you. Alrighty, 10 more seconds. Alrighty, well we might hear some of those suggestions. Why don't we start with the table at the back over there. What's something that we might learn from this story? That God is powerful. That God is powerful, great one. Okay, what about down the front here? Yeah, um, he proves that he is able to save. He proves that he is able to save, good one. At the back over there? He's in total control. 
He's in total control. Good one. Okay, and the front over here. He reigns forever and ever. Okay, good one. And then at the back, finally. God does, God does miracles. Okay, all of those are really great. I've got four of my own that I want to share with you and reflect on. So the first point is that the God of redemption is the God of creation. And therefore, he deserves all the glory. I tried to bring this out as we went through the story. It's the same God who said, let there be light in Genesis 1. That finds him, that he is himself lighting the way in the pillar of cloud uh, and, and fire for Israel in the night. It's the same God who in Genesis 1 separated the waters from the waters in Genesis 1 to that separates the sea in um, Exodus. It's the same God who has the power of heaven and earth, who has judged the earth by water, who, who sets a boundary for the sea to... Um, to make the dry land appear. It's that same God who saves Israel. And really that's just another way of saying that the God of Israel is the God of heaven and earth. He is the one true and living God and there is no other. He's worthy of all praise. He deserves all our doxologies, all of our hallelujahs, all of our praise because he is God and there is no other. It's right for him to act to bring himself glory because he's the only one with a rightful claim to have the glory of all the earth. He's the one who created it all. And just as great art makes us appreciate and stand in awe of the artist, so God's work, both in creation and in redemption, causes us to stand in awe of him. And so the God of creation and the God of redemption are one and the same. A second point of doctrine is that there is something about the nature of God's sovereignty and how that interacts with human responsibility. I think what's something that's, that's interesting about reading this story, a number of points, it's absolutely clear that God is totally in control. And a couple of you guys said that. Uh, and yet, when we see what actually happens, there's a very human element to it as well. Uh, there's human factors that are involved. So, for example, why did Pharaoh pursue the Israelites? Now, the thing that we're told is that Pharaoh reasons to himself, what have we done? We've let go of our free labor. So it's Pharaoh's decision. It's, it's based on logic, or you, might, you, know, you might argue that it's based on an emotional reaction. But either way, it's a human factor that's involved. But on the other hand, we're also told that it, God was clearly in control of that whole situation from the very beginning. It was God who maneuvered the Israelites in order to bait Pharaoh out. It was God who said he was going to harden Pharaoh's heart. He knew what was going to happen from the beginning, and he orchestrated what was going to happen from the very beginning. Well, well, what about who split the sea apart so that the Israelites could go through? And the obvious answer is God did. He sent the wind, he blew the sea apart, he made the dry land appear, of course. But then why does God command Moses in verse 16 to divide the water by raising his hand and, to, and lifting up his staff? Uh, why does Moses need to be involved at all? It kind of seems like a, a a pretty pointless human action if God's the one who's going to do it anyway. And when it comes to the Israelites, are they active or passive in this story? Because when Moses spoke to them in verse 13, 14, all they had to do was to be still and to watch, to see the salvation of the Lord. 
And yet when God spoke in verse 15, he says, move, go. Certainly God did all the fighting. God did, uh, did all the work of making a way through the sea. And yet the Israelites still had to walk on the way. And the whole Bible is full of this tension, the, the tension between God's absolute sovereignty, the fact that he's in control of every single thing that happens, and real human agency and responsibility. God orchestrates all things according to his will and his purposes, and yet human beings are rightly held to account for the decisions and uh, choices that they make and for the actions that they take. Humans really are called to make a choice. Are you going to walk in faith or unfaith? Are you going to be soft-hearted or hard-hearted uh, when it comes to following God? Now, let me just pause and apply this point for a second, right? So a couple of years ago, um, there, I was speaking at an EU event, an evangelistic talk, and there was an unbeliever who came and he just couldn't get over the, the doctrine of predestination. His problem was that um, if if God has already determined everything from the beginning, if he's in control of everything, then there's no point in me making a decision about Jesus. If he wants me to be a Christian, then he'll make it happen. But I can't do anything about it. Right? That was his argument. But I hope you can see that that is not at all how the Bible sees it. The fact that Pharaoh hardened his heart is a choice that Pharaoh made. And that's a choice for which he is really responsible. And that, according to the Bible, is not in conflict with the fact that God himself also says he is in control of the entire situation, even in control of Pharaoh's rebellion, because the two work in unison. And so it is so that when someone makes a choice to become a Christian, you're called with a genuine offer. You need to choose life. You must choose whether you're going to put your hope in Jesus or not. And yet, if you do make that choice, or if you have made that choice, you look back at the choice that you've made and you say, even the decision that I made to follow Jesus was all in God's hands. He was in charge of it all. It was only by the grace of God that I was able to make the decision to follow Jesus. Now, what if you pray? If, you're, if you pray, then you're, we're told that God knows what you need before you even ask him. So what's the point? of asking God for the things that we want or that we need. God still commands us to pray though, because the nature of his sovereignty is such that he hasn't created human robots. He hasn't just created mere slaves. It's to his glory that he wants our participation. Now we could talk about evangelism and mission, bringing the gospel to the world, because it's theoretically, I suppose, you could argue possible that God could bring people to himself without any human intervention. He could bring people to Christ without anyone sharing the gospel, but that is actually not how God has chosen to do it. In his wisdom, he's chosen for us to be his co-workers, for us to do the work of sharing the story of the Bible, to do the strategic work of understanding the people uh, and where they're at, and to try to work out how best to teach and disciple them, for us to actually go into every tribe and language and people group with the good news of Jesus Christ. We're called to do this gospel work, even though we'll look back at the fruit of our labor and we'll say, God was in charge of it all. He's the one who brought the fruit. He's the one who brought people to himself. God did it all. That's just the Christian life. God is totally in control and he must be, otherwise he's not God. He orchestrates all the events of our lives, 
but never in a way that absolves us of our responsibility and the necessity of our own decision-making and action. To live for or against the will of God is a choice that we must make. We're saved by grace, and yet we stretch out our hands like Moses in prayer. We move forward in faith like the Israelites. We must do it even though God is in complete control. Well, a third point of doctrine is this picture that God gives us of of God as warrior. God's a military tactician. He's maneuvering the Israelites in order to draw out the Egyptians. Moses is the one who says, God will fight for you. Uh, the Egyptians, even when uh, themselves, when they experience that the, their chariot wheels have been jammed, they say, the Lord is fighting for them against us. And so when it comes to the song that is sung in chapter 15, it's no surprise that that becomes a, an, an explicit doctrine that's stated in verse 3. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Now, if this is true, then the implication is this. If the Lord is a warrior and he's the one who fights then there is no hope at all to be found outside of God. There is no hope at all to be found in opposing God. It will not matter how much influence you have, how much power you have, how powerful your army is, how much money you have, what job title you have. If you oppose the Lord, the one true living God, then you will be completely and utterly defeated. And conversely, the only place of hope and safety is in that same one true living God. If the Lord fights against you, then you are doomed. There is no hope to be found. But if the Lord fights for you, then who can be against you? The the greatest assurance that we can possibly have is that the fact that God is for us, that he fights for us. With him on our side, we can face anything. And that brings me to the last point of doctrine here. It's how all of our fears must give way to the fear of the Lord. What we read about when the Israelites are stuck, when they raise up their eyes, they see the Egyptians on the horizon coming toward them or that they've overtaken them and they're stuck, they panic, they're anxious. They, um, uh, they have all of the fears that we covered in the, just the previous series that we just did with Seth. Seth talked about the fear of other people and here are the Israelites and they're fearful of the Egyptians. We talked about the fear of failure. And here they they are, they're afraid that the exodus has failed. And we talked about the fear of death. And here they are, they're all saying, we're going to die in the wilderness. They're so scared, they're so anxious. And yet we're told, actually, that at the end of the story, in the, the last verse of chapter 14, after God has saved them, when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord, and they put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. They move from the the fear of other people, from the fear of death, from the fear of failure to the fear of the Lord. As for the nations, they will hear about what God has done and fear him as well. If you've got your Bible in front of you, you can just cast your eyes, chapter 15, verse 14. The nations will hear and tremble. Anguish will grip the people of Philistia. The chiefs of Edom will be terrified. The leaders of Moab will be seized with trembling. The people of Canaan will melt away. Terror and dread will fall on them. You see, the right response to seeing or even just hearing about the mighty deeds of the Lord is to fear him. And that fear will be full of dread 
and terror and trembling for those who oppose God, but it will be full of trust for those who are on God's side. Well, we've covered the drama and the doctrine along with some doxology. Now we need to move from doctrine to discipleship. And we've got to make this short, I realize. Now, what, some of us are stuck. Some of us are trapped. We don't know how to deal with the situation that we're in. And so many of us stu- are stuck, we're trapped because we're afraid. You're stuck in a bad relationship and you, you're too afraid to get out. You're stuck in a bad job, you're too afraid to quit. You're stuck in a bad habit, it's too hard, it's too complicated to stop. We're stuck because we're afraid of people. We're stuck because we're afraid of failure. We're stuck because we're afraid of death, or at least of pain and suffering. We're just like the Israelites. but We're stuck between the sea and the fast encroaching army. And the thing about us is that we're too, we're so scared, we're so anxious, we can't have rest, and yet we're so afraid that we can't move forward. It's so easy for us, like the Israelites, to just want to give in to fear and anxiety. Don't we also need, like them, to learn to trust God, not only in the good times, but also in the bad times? Not only when things are going well, but also when we're feeling stuck. Don't we also need to know that, what God, that God uses for His own purposes some things that might look like us walking into a trap. Does not faith sometimes look like the ridiculously risky proposition of walking through a path that has been made through the sea with a wall of water on your right and a wall of water on your left? For some of us, our lack of faith has made us unable to be still, unable to trust that God is for us, And that's why we cry out restlessly, anxiously, with no sense of assurance. For some of us, our lack of faith has made us too passive. We don't trust God enough to take a risk, to move forward in faith, to actually make decisions trusting that God is in control. And perhaps if we just knew who God was, if we were able to see who He is, then we'd be less afraid of what was to come. We'd be more willing to step forward in faith. We'd take a hold of a way out of being stuck in a bad place. Because you see, God's promise is that if we trust Him, then He is for us. There's only one person in the entire history of the world to whom God has ever said, if you trust me completely, if you give yourself over to me and... uh, and and entrust yourself to my will, then I will utterly reject you and condemn you. I will be against you if you trust me. He has not said that to any of us. And yet in the Garden of Gethsemane, you may know this story. Jesus understood that if he submitted himself fully to God's will, if he moved forward in faith and in trust, then he would have to drink the cup of God's wrath He would have to face the waters of God's judgment falling upon him. He would be swallowed up by death. Do you know why he did it? He did it so that we would never have to. Jesus died on the cross. He faced his worst fears so that we wouldn't have to be afraid. And here's the proof that God, the God of creation and redemption, the God who is the mighty warrior, he fights for us because he's already won the battle. The invitation of God 
to us now is to trust Him, to know that He fights for us, to believe that He's for us. And therefore, as Romans 8 says, none can be against us. This is what Romans 8 says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels or demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.